study through 2 Corinthians, if you've got your Bibles, 2 Corinthians chapter 7. Just encourage you, you know, to uh, to bring your Bibles when when you come to church here, and um, we do have them available in the back. And if if you come in, you forgot it or whatever, just grab a Bible. I, um, you know, we place a great deal of emphasis on going through the Word and and teaching the Word, and it's great to have it in front of you and and to be able to see it and to be able to um, have that other. Uh, you know, way of learning, which is visually, you know, uh, auditory is, is great and we learn that way. But as you see it there, God can speak uh, to you um, through his word in an even greater way. So I just encourage you to uh, to have your Bibles open and and to uh, read along with me as we make our way uh, through these different books. And right now we're going through Second Corinthians. We have been for the past couple months and it's been an amazing study. And here in chapter 7, we're going to look at verses 2 through 16. And and Paul really picks up a discussion that he ended in chapter 2. If you flip just a couple pages back to chapter 2, actually in my Bible it's only one page, but back to chapter 2, verse 12, Paul kind of ends this discussion here that he was talking about his travel plans and just some of the things that were going on in his life and the difficulties he was experiencing, and he says there in verse 12, Furthermore, when I came to Troas to preach Christ's gospel, and a door was opened to me by the Lord, I had no rest in my spirit, because I did not find Titus my brother. But taking my leave of them, I departed for Macedonia. And so you remember that Paul had sent Titus to Corinth to deal with the problems that were there. And he had sent him with a severe letter. He had sent him to try to rectify this church that was just in horrendous shape. And they were, as we've talked about at great length, this church was the cause of a lot of problems for Paul. They were, you know, gossiping about him. They had assassinated his character. They were stabbing him in the back. They had just taken everything that he had done and basically thrown it in his face. And so Paul sent Titus there. And what I love about chapter 2, verses 12 and 13 is that Paul sent Titus there and then he was hoping that he would have, you know, met him in in, uh, Troas and they were supposed to meet up there. And, and, you know, some time went by and, and, you know, there's no Titus to be found. And you have to remember, there's no telephones, no email. It wasn't like he was picking him up at the airport. You know, this is this is antiquity here. You know, it was like, okay, well, maybe he didn't make the one boat that comes every six months, you know. Um, And so he was getting kind of worried about it and he didn't want to wait around anymore. So he got on his own boat and headed to Macedonia. And I love that about Paul, that first of all, he worried. And second, he was impatient. I can relate to that. A lot of things about Paul I don't relate to. Because, you know, it's like, man, I want to be that, but I'm not. But I can relate to worrying and I can relate to impatience. I've got some of that in my life. And Paul did, too. And he was worried about things and he was impatient and he kind of, you know, was trying to take care of these things. And Paul kind of picks this theme back up here in verse 2 of chapter 7. Picks up this discussion 
that he left off with. And, and in this section, the word comfort is used six times. It's really the theme of this section of Scripture. It's a section that deals with depression and difficulty for sure, as we're going to see. But more than that, it's God's comfort in the midst of the depression and the difficulty. It's it's God's presence. It's God's touch in the midst of all that. Because God is by nature a God of comfort. In fact, in chapter 1, verse 3, we learned that God is the God of all comfort. And so we're going to see that clearly this morning. In fact, we're going to see comfort demonstrated to us in three ways. We're going to see the comfort of real ministry. We're going to see the comfort of a real touch of God. And we're going to see the comfort of real repentance. So let's look at the comfort of real ministry, verses 2 through the beginning of verse 4. Open your hearts to us. We have wronged no one. We have corrupted no one. We have cheated no one. I do not say this to condemn, for I have said before that you are in our hearts to die together and to live together. Great is my boldness of speech toward you. Great is my boasting on your behalf. And so Paul really shares here what it is to be involved with real ministry And how that real ministry can be a great source of comfort. We see Paul demonstrating what real ministry is, in fact, in two ways. First, it's compassionate concern. He says, open your hearts to us. That word, open your hearts, it means to make room in your hearts. This is key in ministry. Because I think a lot of times we launch out to do things for the Lord. Maybe it's a mission trip. Maybe it's being involved in feeding the poor. Maybe it's involved in some outreach that we're doing or teaching Sunday school or whatever it is. And we're doing it because there's a need. We're doing it because we think we have to. And yet our hearts really aren't in it. And we certainly have not opened our hearts to other people. And, you know, the other day I was at the store and this guy that's involved in uh, some things in the community said, hey, Ryan, we we want you to be on this board. Uh, we want to get a, a, you know, a faith influence in this thing in the community. And I think you'd be great and we'd love to have you. And and I just said, you know, um, let me pray about that and let me see if that's really on my heart. And let me see if that's something that I think will be a good fit, because, I, you know, just because there's a need doesn't mean that I'm going to just jump at it. And I think for years, for me, I've jumped at needs. Oh, it's a need. OK, I'll do it. But my heart's really not in it, and I haven't opened my heart up to it. And so there's needs, but then there's also allowing those needs to come into our heart and to open our heart. And you guys, when you launch out to do ministry, if you're not opening your heart to the people that you're ministering to, they'll be able to tell. It's like if you go to Mexico on a short-term mission trip, and your heart isn't open to the people, you're not making room in your heart for those people, they'll be able to tell. Yeah, this guy's here to take some pictures so that, you know, he can be on the website, you know. Or this guy's here, I I don't know why this guy's here, maybe he likes fish tacos. You know, I'm not really sure what this guy's doing, but, but certainly he's not here to allow room for us in his heart. He hasn't opened his heart, and that's true for anything you're doing for the Lord. You've got to open your heart up. 
You've got to make room in your heart for other people. And I'm pretty sure that we've made room in our heart for what we want to make room in our heart for. We've opened up our heart to a lot of things. But we've got to start opening up our heart to people. You remember the priests, how they would wear the ephod? And on the ephod would be the 12 stones, each one representing a tribe of Israel. And it was to show the people that the priests were carrying the people on their heart. That they cared about them. It was a very tangible way for them to look and to say, we're on His heart. He cares about us. He prays for us. He intercedes for us. And you guys, we're priests of God. The Bible is very clear about that. As we've been studying through the Old Testament, it's kind of been a theme. But a lot of these things that the priests did apply to us. Are we carrying people on our heart? Have we made room in our heart for people? And i got to be honest, I look around, I watch a lot of stuff that happens at church, and, and I see you guys. And, and I see that some of you have not made room in your heart for anybody. There's not a lot of room there. You're here, but you're really not here. You're here in physical presence, but you haven't opened up your heart to anybody. You're not going to give your heart away. As soon as the service is over, you're out the door. You don't want to talk to anybody. You don't want to be vulnerable. You don't want to minister to people. Guys, we've got to start opening up our heart. We've got to start being vulnerable. We've got to start allowing people to get in our heart and care about people. It's key. It's a key to real ministry. Paul demonstrates real ministry with his compassionate concern. He says that, in fact, he was even willing to die for these people. He says we die together. In another section, in Romans, Paul says that he would have gladly given his salvation over for their salvation. He would trade his eternal life that they might have eternal life. And of course, Paul is speaking in a tongue-in-cheek fashion because that is impossible. But what he was demonstrating was his heart for people. That that's how much he cared about them. The same Paul that at one time was dragging people off to prison, that at one time stood there while Stephen was being stoned, this same Paul now had a heart to see people come to know Jesus. And maybe you haven't really allowed God to do that change in your life. Yeah, you know the Lord. But your heart's still hard toward people. You're not willing to give your heart away. And you're not willing to open up your heart and let people in. Paul says he was willing to die for them. He also says he was willing to live together with them. And sometimes that's even more difficult. It's easy to say, yeah, I would die for that person, but sometimes it's more difficult to live with that person, to dwell with that person, to love that person, to put up with them, to show grace to them. Well, Paul not only demonstrates real ministry with compassionate concern, he also demonstrates real ministry with a clear conscience. As he says there, that we have wronged no one, we have corrupted no one, we have cheated no one. Paul's conscience was clear when it came to ministry. He hadn't wronged anybody. 
Yeah, in the past he had, certainly. But as a believer and as a minister, he had wronged no one. He had corrupted no one. In other words, he hadn't stumbled anybody. In fact, in Corinth, Paul was willing to give up eating meat because he thought it was a stumbling block to people. Paul, in fact, didn't even take any money from them because he didn't want for them to have any opportunity to point fingers. And so he made tents on the side. Paul hadn't corrupted anyone at all. He hadn't cheated anyone. Paul said, my conscience is clear, and that's important for real ministry. If you want to minister to people, our motives need to be pure. Our actions need to be right. need to be in it for the right reasons and go about it the right way. And there is comfort in real ministry. Real ministry can be a source of great comfort. And God wants to use us not only to receive ministry. We all receive it. And that's important. You need to receive ministry. But you know what? Whether you've been saved for a week or a month or a year or for several decades, God wants to use you. God's got a ministry for you. God wants you to make room in your hearts for somebody else. Well, there's also the idea here of the comfort of a real touch of God. The end of verse 4 down through verse 7, Paul says, I am filled with comfort. I am exceedingly joyful in all our tribulation. For indeed, when we came to Macedonia, our bodies had no rest, but we were troubled on every side. Outside were conflicts. Inside were fears. Nevertheless, God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus. The comfort of a real touch of God. Paul says, I am filled with comfort. I'm exceedingly joyful. Well, this must have been because Paul had such an easy life. I mean, nothing difficult ever happened to him. Nothing challenging ever came his way. And if that's our thought, it's totally wrong. We've talked about how difficult Paul's life was. In fact, in previous chapters, Paul said he was despairing even of life. In chapter 11, Paul lists all the difficulties that he had. In fact, here in verse 5, Paul says, For indeed, when we came to Macedonia, by the time we got there, after I had been worried sick about all this stuff, my body had no rest. I was troubled on every side. Outside were conflicts. Inside were fears. These were the things Paul was going through. He had no rest. He couldn't sleep at night. He was just so filled with worry and so filled with anxiety and so filled with trouble over this situation. In fact, he was troubled on every side. It was just like, you know, one of those medieval rooms where the walls collapse in on you. That's how Paul felt. He said, outside were conflicts. I think we can relate to that, just having conflicts with people. And you know, we come home from a, a day at work and we had like one conflict, you know, and, and we're all bummed out because we had one conflict. Paul had a whole city that hated him. 
He says that inside we're fierce. I think sometimes we read about Paul and we read about these men and women in the Bible and we think, man, you know, nothing ever fazed them. They, they weren't afraid of anything. Paul's opening his heart. He's sharing with us. Look, I was afraid. Yeah, you know when I got stoned in Lystra and I got up and I went to the next city and I preached the gospel? I was afraid. See, I think we look at the heroes in the Bible and we think they were never afraid. That way we can justify why we don't do stuff. Because we think, well, I was afraid, so I didn't do it. Well, so was Paul. Paul was afraid, but he kept going. You don't think Paul was afraid after every city he went into, there was a riot? And he was stoned, and he was beaten, and he was imprisoned? You don't think that created fear? You remember when he was sitting there after God had told him that he was going to be sending him to Rome and he was there in the book of Acts and it says he was trembling and God came to him at night and encouraged his heart. You don't think Paul was afraid when when Agabus told him that the the person that owned this belt would would be facing many trials at the hands of the Gentiles? You don't think Paul was afraid? He was certainly afraid, but he kept going. He didn't allow that fear to derail him, to dissuade him from what God had called him to do. And so the fact that Paul was filled with all comfort, the fact that Paul was exceedingly joyful here, was not because he had an easy life. It was because he made a choice to experience the touch of Jesus in the midst of that. To experience God's presence. See, we can believe God's presence. We can intellectually know that God's always with us. We can have the right things to say. We can even say, yeah, God works all things together. We can say, yeah, just need to have faith. We can say, yeah, God's going to make this happen. But if then we're in the muck of misery and in the despair of of discouragement and we never get out of that, we have to wonder if we're really experiencing the presence of God or if we just believe it's there, believe He's there, but we're not really experiencing. Paul says, nevertheless, God who comforts the downcast. That word downcast means depressed. Nevertheless, God who comforts the downcast, comforts the depressed. See, there's this sort of imbalance in the church. You got on one hand people that say depression doesn't exist. And that discouragement doesn't happen. And then on the other hand, you got people over here that say, well, you know, depression is sort of a disease that only certain people have and you just kind of struggle, you know, with it your whole life. Neither one of those things are right. We all have depression, we all have discouragement. It's just a choice of whether you're going to live in it or work through it. As the psalmist said, passing through the valley of suffering. It's not something that you live in. You know, you don't build a house there, you know, and just live in this Eeyore mentality for the rest of your life. You know, yeah, woe is me. This is my lot in life, you know. People are passing by. What, what are you doing? Oh, I live here. Don't worry about me. This is... 
This is what I like to do, just feel sorry for myself all the time. And that's how so many live. Just living in discouragement and depression all the time. Acting as if they're the only ones. And that's, you guys, the thing that the enemy will choose to do. He uses that tool in your life to make you feel as if you're the only one. Make you feel like you're the only one that's ever gone through that thing. To make you feel like you're the only one that's experiencing that. And it's a real lie of the devil. We're not the only ones. You remember Elijah after he had killed 750 prophets of Baal? He was up there on Mount Carmel and he was at the top of his game. I mean, he was just fired up. And then he heard that Jezebel, this wicked queen, the wife of Ahab, wanted to kill him. He got news of that. And he ran for his life out into the boonies. And he lived out there for a while. And ravens had to come and feed him. And finally, the Lord appears to him and and says, Elijah, what are you doing? What exactly are you accomplishing out here? Didn't you see my hand in the fact that you just did an amazing thing with the prophets of Baal? How I consumed that altar after all of their efforts and they couldn't do it and then you prayed to me and I did and now you got one word from a crazy queen and you ran for your life? You know, sometimes I think we're a lot like that. You know, things are just going so well and then we get one little piece of bad news and it just throws us off. And we blow it up and we're living out in this barren land of depression. God comes to us, what are you doing here? What exactly is going on? And then Elijah said, well, I'm the only one that loves you. I'm the only one that calls your name and nobody else is following you. And the Lord said, baloney. You're deceived. Get off your duff and go and minister to somebody. See, that's the thing, you guys. A lot of us are like Elijah. We're living out there. We're feeling sorry for ourselves. We want people to minister to us. We want people to coddle us. And God says, what are you doing here? What's going on? I've got people for you to minister to. I've got people for you to touch and bless. You're not the only one that's gone through this. There's several people. In fact, there's a whole bunch of people that have gone through the exact same thing that you've gone through and are going through. And while you're sitting here feeling sorry for yourself, they're not being ministered to. And if you would get out of this depression that you're in and look to me and allow me to touch your heart, I've got some people that are going through the exact same thing as you that I want you to come alongside and be a blessing to them. That's, in fact, why you went through this. is so that you could be a blessing to them. The enemy wants you to feel like you're the only one, but God wants to reveal to you that there's a lot of people because He wants you to minister to those people. That's what 2 Corinthians chapter 1 is all about. What's the reason for our suffering? So that we can comfort other people. I don't know what you've gone through. 
But statistics tell us that just about everybody's gone through hard times. Statistics tell us that that one in three young girls are sexually abused. And those girls want to feel like they're the only ones, and yet there's probably a third of society, of women that have gone through that very same thing. And He wants to use them to minister to the others. God wants you to feel like you're the only one that doesn't have a good relationship with your parents. You didn't have a very good home life. You didn't have a very good upbringing. And yet there's countless people that God wants you to minister to who have gone through the same thing. The devil wants you to feel like you're the only one that doesn't have a great relationship with your kids. There's a lot of people that are feeling bad about the way they raise their kids. They don't have a very good relationship with them. And you can be used to minister to them. The devil wants you to feel like you're the only one that has wild and crazy kids right now. And God wants to show you that, man, there's a lot of parents who are struggling just like you with with kids who are, you know, of all ages. See, and if we're all just in our own little bubbles of depression and we don't open our hearts to other people and allow people to come in and allow people to be a part of our lives, we don't see that. And it's real sad. And it's it's a tragedy. God wants to use us, you guys, to minister to other people. But we've got to take the time. We've got to take the initiative. We've got to be willing to open our hearts and share our struggles and share our pains. And you know what? When you do that, sometimes you get burned. And if you've been in ministry for any length of time, you'll see that there will be people that will hurt you, that will take your vulnerability and they'll use it against you. And what we do is we tend to back off. We say, well, I'm not doing that again. Well, I'm just super glad that Jesus didn't do that. Jesus keeps blessing us. He keeps opening His heart up to us. There's real comfort, you guys, in experiencing the touch of God. And maybe you need His touch this morning. In in whatever way you're struggling, don't let the enemy tell you that depression is something that Christians should never experience. Paul experienced it. He said that he was downcast. But also don't let the devil tell you that you can just live there and that it's okay. You know, yeah, the doctor told me that that's just the way I am and that I'm just going to have to be this way and he gave me a medication. I'm just going to live like this forever. Hey, that's baloney as well. That's garbage. God didn't create you to live that way. And if, if you need medication, if you're on that, that's, that's fine. But just know that that's not what God has for us. He said, I have come that you might have life and have it more abundantly. You guys, eternal life starts today. It doesn't start the day that you die. It started the day you got saved. 
And God wants you to live abundantly. God wants you to live a full, satisfied life starting today. He's got great things for you. But if you are constantly feeling sorry for yourself, you won't experience those things. Allow Him to touch your heart. And then open your heart up so that you can be an extension of His touch to somebody else. Because you see, that's how God used Titus here. It was not only God who comforted Paul, but He comforted Paul through Titus. Verse 6. Titus was a great source of encouragement to Paul. And Titus was, was a guy that Paul had discipled. Paul could have said, oh, come on, Titus. I mean, you know, he's just one of the guys like Timothy and Silas. I mean, yeah, they're just little snot-nosed brats. I mean, come on. No, but Paul was humble enough to say, God can use anybody in my life. And maybe you need a Titus right now. Or maybe you need to be a Titus. You're in one of those two places in your life right now. You're either needing a Titus or you need to be a Titus. You either need to open your heart up and let somebody touch you and let God touch you or you need to open your heart up and let your life be an extension of God's touch for them. The comfort of the touch of God. Well, in verses 8 through the end of the chapter, we see the comfort of real repentance. In verse 8, he says, For even if I made you sorry with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it. For I perceive that the same epistle made you sorry, though only for a while. Here Paul discusses in these verses the difference between regret and repentance. And the comfort that real repentance brings. You see, regret is an emotion. Every person who's ever lived feels regret. But repentance is a change of the will. It's a decision. Regret involves guilt and everybody has guilt. Even the guys on death row that have done unspeakable things, they have guilt. They may act like they don't. They may put on a show like they don't. But in their heart, they live with those things and they have guilt because we're all born with a conscience. But guilt isn't good enough. Regret isn't near good enough. That's worldly sorrow as Paul describes it here. What God wants is repentance. Regret is an emotion. Repentance is a change. It's a decision that you were going this way, but now you turn 180 degrees and you go the other way. Paul says, I made you sorry. And you know, repentance involves conflict. Most of the time, God's going to use somebody to point out your failings and your flaws. Paul says, I made you sorry. In fact, I kind of regretted sending the letter. I sent it off with Titus and I thought, man, maybe that was a little harsh. Maybe that was a little bit too in their face. 
But he says, I didn't regret it enough to go chase him down and tear it up. I knew it's what you needed to hear, but I was a little bit afraid that it might have been coming on a little strong. But I knew you needed to hear it. And you know what? Hebrews chapter 12, verse 11 says that the chastisement of the Lord is painful, but it brings forth the peaceable fruits of righteousness. Confronting people, you guys, and being confronted with our sin is never fun. People say, yeah, I don't want to do that. You know, it's not fun. Well, when is it fun? It's not fun for anybody. There's some people that just enjoy doing that. Not really. Nobody enjoys it. It's just some people have the courage to do it. Being told about some failure or flaw in your life hurts. People will say, well, I love them too much to tell them. It's just, I I just love them so much I could never tell them that. No, it's a total lie. It's total deception. You love yourself too much. We love ourselves too much to face the consequences for what might happen if we confront that person. We've got to be real with ourselves. We've got to be honest. That's why we don't do it. If you really love them, you would tell them those things. You would share with them. Now, there's a way to do it. The Bible says that we need to speak the truth in love and just blasting people and then wondering, they didn't receive it, you know, too bad for them. I mean, there is a way in which we can approach people in love. Because if, you, if you're going to confront somebody and you're going to expose yourself like that and you're going to put yourself out on the limb like that, you might as well have them receive it. It's kind of nice, right? And so if you can have some, some advice, some tips on how to be better received, we ought to take it. And I think one of the ways in which we can be better received is by starting out with a positive. You know, if you just go in with both barrels blasting, it's not received real well. And that's my tendency. That's my personality. Just, you know, here it is. Here's what you're going to hear. And and too bad. And, you know, what... Oftentimes, what's here is going to be coming out here with me. This is the way that that my family was, the way I was raised. You know where you're at. You know where I stand. But I've come to realize that there's positive things about that, but there's also some negative things about that. And it's okay to, to kind of couch stuff with some positive Say, you know, man, you're really growing in this area and you're really doing well here. And Man, it's awesome to see. And, and by the way, you know, there's nothing wrong with that. But confronting people is difficult and we often avoid it because we don't want to face the consequences of the confrontation. But we need to. That's what love does. Paul says, now I rejoice not that you were made sorry, verse 9, but that your sorrow led to repentance. For we were made sorry in a godly manner that you might suffer loss from us in nothing. For godly sorrow produces repentance leading to salvation. 
not to be regretted, but the sorrow of the world produces death. Paul's just describing the difference between repentance and regret. Worldly sorrow leads to feeling bad, but repentance leads to change. And Paul says, I rejoice that my letter made you feel bad, but I rejoice even more that the fact that you felt bad led to your repentance. See, we can't make people repent. You can confront people. And they might feel bad about it, but their repentance is up to them. Their change of direction is on them. So God might want to use you to make them feel bad. I mean, that's not like who we ought to be. We shouldn't like define our life by that. Yeah, I just go around making people feel bad. That's my ministry. I'm gifted that way. But at times... God will use you to do that. And it's okay if they feel bad. We need to feel bad sometimes. But that feeling bad, you guys, needs to bring change. Otherwise, it's worthless. Otherwise, it's just an emotion, a passing feeling. And you know, we need to be able to not only confront people, but we need to be able to hear it. We talked a couple weeks ago about the fact that Paul had a heart to grow. If you remember that. And, and I said, part of having a heart to grow is that you are willing to ask people tough questions. Such as, how do you think I can improve? You know, if, if you're an employee, you want to ask a tough question to your boss? You ask him, how do you think I can improve? How can I do better? You want to blow him away, but make his day or her day? How can I improve? How can I do better? You're a student. You ask your teacher, how can I be a better student? You're involved in ministry and and there's somebody above you in that ministry. And you ask him, how can I minister better? How can I be more effective? You ask your spouse, how can I be a better husband, a better wife? How can I be a better father, a better mother? How can I be a better Christian? See, these are tough questions because we don't want to hear the answers. We need to be able to hear that and receive it. And as you grow in your walk with the Lord, you begin to see things about yourself and recognize things about yourself that maybe you thought were positive. You you thought that was actually something that was a good characteristic of yours, and yet God is actually showing you that it needs to go, that you need to repent of that. And God might want to use people to confront you with that. I mean, for me, as a child, I I was a very sensitive kid. And even into, you know, I, I think I, I even carry it with me today, but it's something I've had to, to grow in. Just being overly sensitive. You know, always caring about what people thought. Always wanting people to like me. Always wanting to be accepted. Having thin skin, being overly sensitive. And you know, you can kind of think that that's a positive attribute. You can kind of think that that's 
a good characteristic because you care about what people think and and you're sensitive and, you know, you, you want people to like you and, you know, but what God revealed to me is that that's not a positive thing. That's a result of my flesh. It's selfish. It's a desire to be the center of attention. It's the desire to be popular. It's the desire to have everybody like you so that everybody thinks you're great. That's not positive. And sometimes we need to be confronted with those things. And they hurt, especially when you weren't even thinking about it. It's like you had no idea that that was a problem. And you're confronted with it. And it's like, whoa, I never even thought about that. I didn't realize that I was a gossip. I I didn't realize that I was so selfish. I I didn't realize that I was so bitter. I didn't realize I was greedy. I didn't realize that I was a flake. And, And people come to you and they confront you and how you respond is a great indication of where your heart's at. If you respond with defending yourself, with justifying it, with saying, well, that's just the way I am. You're going to have to deal with me. Well, no people aren't. We need to be willing to change, to grow, to be challenged. And it's called repentance. See, Paul says that This sorrow led to their salvation in verse um, 10. For godly sorrow produces repentance leading to salvation. Well, I thought the church of Corinth were people that were already saved. Exactly. This wasn't repentance to salvation in terms of coming to know Christ. This was salvation from themselves. This was growth. See, we need to be saved from ourselves as much as we need to be saved from sin. We've got to get self out of the way. In, in, in Romans 6, 7, and 8, Paul deals with that. In chapter 6, Paul deals with sin. And he says, okay, now that that's out of the way, in chapter 7, we're going to deal with self. And in chapter 8, he gives us the way that we do that, and it's through the Spirit. A lot of us have been saved from sin, but we haven't been saved from ourselves. And ourself is getting in the way of what God wants to do. And you've got to take a long, hard look in the mirror and say, you know what, I'm not perfect. And we don't see it. We don't see a lot of our own failings. It was just like a few years ago, when I began to be challenged in, in some of the ways that I did ministry. I never thought that I had an issue with the way that I was teaching. It didn't seem to me to be ineffective. And if somebody was to ask me, well, you know, what's your strongest suit in ministry? I probably would have said, well, I... I think that, you know, teaching, I think that's my my gift. I think that's what God's called me to do. 
Never realizing that God wanted to challenge me. Never realizing that God wanted to confront some things. Not that I was a bad teacher, but God wanted to make me an even better one. And that was hard to hear. Because that was my strength. See? And an unguarded strength, you guys, is a double weakness. Some of your strengths, you've kind of put on the back burner and you think, I don't need to deal with that. And you've dealt with other things. Meanwhile, God wants to deal with you on your strengths. Because He wants to make you even stronger in those areas. And you've got to be willing to confront some things that you thought didn't need to be confronted, that you thought weren't an issue. And you need to be willing to change. Verse 13, Therefore we have been comforted in your comfort, and we rejoiced exceedingly more for the joy of Titus, because his spirit has been refreshed by you all. For if in anything I have boasted to him about you, I am not ashamed. But as we spoke all things to you in truth, even so our boasting to Titus was found true. And his affections are greater for you as he remembers the obedience of you all. How with fear and trembling you received him. Therefore, I rejoice that I have confidence in you in everything. This is an amazing thing to me. Because before Titus got there, before these people repented, Paul had told Titus, look, I have great confidence in these people there in Corinth. And he boasted about them. He said great things about them. I don't know what Paul could have possibly said good about those people. They had trashed him. They had hurt him. They had allowed false teachers to come into the church and to run Paul down and they never came to his defense. And yet Paul was able to say, I boasted about you guys. I have great confidence in you. And you guys... In our ability to comfort people through real ministry, through the real touch of God, through real repentance, sometimes we have to see some good in people that doesn't exist. And I don't know that that kind of deception is really a bad thing. Sometimes we need to see people through the eyes of Jesus. And be willing to say things about them, positive things, hoping that maybe they'll reach that point. Because it's real easy to point out the bad in people. It's real easy. Anybody can do that. I had other words I was going to use, but anybody can do that. It doesn't take a genius to point out negative things. But it takes somebody with a heart for people. It takes somebody who's sensitive to God. It takes someone who has experienced Jesus personally to say, you know what? I've got great confidence when they don't deserve it. You know what? I'm, I'm boasting about you when there's really not a whole lot to boast about. You know, as parents, I think we could learn from that. Instead of running your kids down all the time, start to speak positive things 
and watch them attain that. Because people, you guys, will pretty much become what you say about them. Our kids will be what you say about them. If you call them stupid and you call them an idiot and you, t- you say they're dumb all the time, that's what they're going to be. But if you build them up, if you say, this is what I think you can be, here's what I think you can do, they're going to say, I don't really know if that's true, but I want it to be true. And the same applies if you are a boss. The same applies if you work with people. The same applies with your friends. If you see things in them that need to change, yeah, God's calling you to confront them, but God's also calling you to speak positively in their life and to see things about them that maybe nobody else sees. To boast about them. To have confidence in them. See, that's part of the solution as well. It's real easy to point out the negative. Sometimes it's hard to trust people, to have confidence in people, to speak well of people when they don't deserve it. And that's the heart of God. Let's stand and pray together.